Your singing sounded great this morning, great songs and great singing. I know that God receives your worship as a sacrifice, and uh, He is pleased when we lift our voices in song to praise the name of Jesus. Well, it's good to see you this morning. Today I'm beginning a series of four sermons during the month of August entitled Tactics of the Enemy. You see, the enemy is a title that the Bible gives uh, for the devil or Satan. See, the Bible says that there is a personal force of evil in our universe who's named the devil or Satan. Uh, he is opposed to God. He, he was created by God. He was an angel, but he rebelled against God and led other angels in rebellion. And so now there are these the devil and demons, spiritual forces of evil opposed to the work of God in our universe. We, we're in that struggle every day, aren't we? The struggle between good and evil. And because the devil, the enemy, is opposed to God, he's opposed to you because you're the crown of God's creation and God loves you. And so he's sort of trying to get back at God by bringing you down. And the devil's will for your life, what he wants to do in your life, is he wants to destroy you in every way possible. He is the destroyer. He wants to destroy you forever. Let me show you a verse of Scripture to give us just the overall objective of the devil. John chapter 10, verse 10, shares both the objective of Jesus and the objective of the enemy. These are the words of Jesus, and in John 10, 10, it's, he's, Jesus said, the thief, that's the enemy, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So there's the will of Satan for your life. He wants to kill you, steal from you, ultimately destroy you in hell forever. Uh, now that sounds irrational, doesn't it? And I compare it sort of to terrorism today because I, I think terrorism comes from that force of evil. And you know, we hear all these reports about People just randomly bombing and stabbing and shooting. And why would these terrorists just do kill civilians like this in marketplaces and restaurants? It doesn't make sense, does it? It's just irrational destruction, isn't it? That's what Satan is. He's just irrationally destroying. And terrorism is just an, a manifestation of that force of evil in our universe of irrational destruction. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come for just the opposite. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. So here's Satan's objective. We've got his overall objective now. What we're going to look at in this sermon series is, how is he do, trying to do that? What are his methods, his tactics, his strategies to destroy us? Because if somebody was kind of trying to destroy me, I'd sort of want to know how they were trying to do that, wouldn't you? So that I could thwart that. So the key verse for this whole series is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says there that Satan might not outwit us, so he's trying to outwit us or gain an advantage over us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And I read that verse, and I thought, are we unaware of his schemes? Are you aware of the schemes of Satan? And I got to thinking, you know, part of my job is to help 
us make sure we are aware of the schemes, the strategies, the tactics of the devil. So I tried to go through the New Testament, look at every place that the devil was mentioned to try to discern what are his schemes, what are these strategies that Paul is referring to there. And I I think there are four main themes, four main strategies or tactics that the devil's trying to use to destroy us. We're going to look at one of these each of the next four weeks so that we can understand what our enemy is seeking to do in our lives, how he is trying to destroy us. Today we look at the first of these four tactics, and here it is. It is that he's trying to conceal the good news. The, the, the tactic we're looking at today is that Satan is trying to conceal the good news. Um, you see, if Jesus is coming to give us life, then uh, Satan wants to conceal that. He doesn't want you to hear the good news of life. Uh, he, he wants you just to rock along just as you are and never really encounter the good news, or the Bible calls it the gospel of Jesus. I'm going to look at two passages today that uh, expose this strategy. The first one uh, is in Luke, and it tells us that the enemy seeks to keep the message of the good news away from you. So the first way he's concealing The good news is he tries to keep the message of the good news away from you. He does not want you to hear this message. So uh, let me read to you from Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 5. Jesus is telling a parable here. And he says, while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told them this parable. Parable is a story that has a meaning. So Jesus said in verse 5, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. So that's the first part. He talks about four different kinds of soil, and that's the first one. Now, what does that mean? Well, we don't have to guess, because later on, Jesus tells us. So let's read his interpretation in verse 11. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the Word of God. So you got a farmer, and he's like, we would say broadcasting, like you would sow seed in a field. And so the seed represents the message of the kingdom, Matthew's gospel says, the word of God, the Bible, the story of the good news. So Jesus is sowing that that message. And he says, verse 12, those along the path are the ones who hear. So the, the hard soil represents your heart if you're a little bit hardened. And he says, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So you hear the the first part of how Satan is trying to conceal the good news from you? He, He is represented by this bird who comes and grabs the seed the moment it hits the ground before it sinks in and takes root. And so Satan doesn't want you to be exposed to the message of the good news or to the Word of God. I think Satan respects the Bible more than some Christians do. He knows its power. And so he doesn't want you to read the Bible. He's trying to keep you from this message of the good news. He doesn't want you to come to church. He doesn't want you to get involved in a Sunday school connection group where you will talk about the Bible together. He doesn't want that. And if you do come to church, as you have today, and you hear the Word, then it says when you hear, He's going to try to snatch it out of your 
mind, and heart before it can sink in and take root. So what he wants to do, he's working. So you're hearing today, but he just wants that to bounce off. So he wants, if you do hear, for you to go from this place and be distracted by other amusements or problems and forget about what you've heard. He doesn't want you to think about it. He doesn't want you to wrestle with it. He doesn't want you to consider it. So if you're going to thwart the tactics of the enemy in your life, what you need to do is you need to read your Bible. You need to hear the message of the good news. Whenever you hear a Sunday school lesson or whenever you read something, then you need to think about what is God saying to me through this today? Because later in this parable, verse 15, Jesus says, But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a good crop. And so if your heart is like a plowed field rather than a path, and it is open to the word and receptive, then the seed falls down into the cracks of the soil, and the birds can't see it, and soon it's taken root, and then it's beyond their ability to destroy You see? So if your heart is open to the Word of God, then you thwart the tactic of the devil. He does not want you to encounter the message of the good news because he knows it's powerful. That's his first way of trying to conceal the good news from you. Now, let's go on to a second passage today, a second way he's trying to conceal the good news. Not only is he trying to keep you from the Bible and the Word of God and from thinking about it, but the enemy seeks to blind your mind to the beauty of the good news or the light of the good news. He works in your mind, we're going to see, as well as keeping you from the uh, influence of the Bible. So let's, let's read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 2 and following. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 2, Paul is talking about his ministry and his preaching. And he says, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So this is Paul's strategy, just going to set forth the truth plainly. But Satan has a counter strategy. And he says in verse 3, And even if our gospel it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, which is the image of God. You hear him just piling up phrases there to describe the greatness of the gospel. It is, he says, the uh, light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the God of this age, that's another title for the enemy or the devil, He's not the one true living God, but he's a little G, God of this age. That is, he has some power and authority for a little while, doesn't he? God of this age, not of the, of the next age, but of this age. And he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You see, the gospel is such great news. Why wouldn't everybody want the free gift of salvation? Why wouldn't God say, I want to give you salvation. I've paid for it through Jesus. Why don't you take that gift? Well, why wouldn't everybody take that gift? Because there's a counterforce at work. The God of this age is working to 
blind, obscure, conceal. He's working, so he works in our minds. So we want to get that for a moment. Let's just jump for a second to two other places where we see Satan working in minds. I want you to get that, that he, that he is able to plant thoughts in your mind or to prompt you in different directions if you allow him. So let's, let's, let me show you two examples of that. In uh, John chapter... Um, John chapter 13, verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. The word prompted there, translated in the King James, the older NIV, put it in his heart. That's literal. literal. So that Satan prompts you to do things, or he puts things in your heart. He put it in Judas' heart. To betray Jesus. So he's the instigator of that. You see how he's working your mind. I'll show you another example in Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received? So here it says that Satan had put it in Ananias' heart to deceive and to lie. You hear that? So, so the enemy, you see how he's working? He can, he's working in your mind. Uh, and, and he prompts you and leads you because he wants to destroy you. And so he blinds us to the truth of the gospel working in our minds. Let me give you one example of what I'm talking about, about how we're sort of blinded to the beauty or the light of the gospel. 2005, about 11 years ago, sociologists did this study of uh, 3,000 teenagers, a sampling of teenagers across the country to ask what their religious beliefs were. These people would now be in their 20s or early 30s, 11 years ago. And they, uh, they came to decide that the title for th that best described the religion of young adults in America today is this, moralistic, therapeutic, Deism. That's three big 50-cent words, I know. That's big words there. But I think it might be worth for us to think about that for just a minute because I think it may well be a description of what many, many people believe in our Christian nation today. What's moralistic, therapeutic deism? There were three main beliefs that they said teenagers, now young adults, had. Number one, there's a God. So most people in America are not atheists. Most people in America believe there's God. There is a God out there somewhere, but he doesn't have anything to do with my normal life unless I have a problem and then I talk to him. That's deism. So that sort of sums up that word deism. There is a God. He's remote. He, he created the world, but he doesn't have anything to do with it now, and he certainly doesn't have anything to do with my life. That's deism. The second belief that they said summed up the beliefs of, of young people was God wants us to be good, fair, and nice. And if you're good, fair, and nice, you'll go to heaven. That's moralistic deism. It's got a moral dimension to it, but it's, you know, God wants us to be good and nice to everybody. And if you're good and nice, then you'll go to heaven. The third part of this is the primary goal of my life is to be happy and to feel good about myself, and God wants me to feel good about myself. That's 
therapeutic, like, like God's a therapist, therapeutic deism. You get so now what the name means? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's sort of the, the, the prevailing idea. And see what has happened. We've had a background of Christianity, but Satan has blinded us to the beauty of the gospel. That's nothing like the gospel. And Satan has blinded our minds and warped us to think there's a remote God, doesn't have much to do with my life, wants me to be good. If I'm good, I'll go to heaven. And he wants me to be really, really happy. And that should be the primary concern of my life is being happy. You get it? That's moralistic, therapeutic deism. I'll give you an example. Here's a book I read this summer on vacation. You ever read a book on vacation? I flew somewhere, you know, you get to get to the airport now when you fly about 17 hours before your plane leaves, you know, and so you got all that time. So this is my book to read sitting in the airport this summer. And it's a book by Rick Bragg. It's sort of his memoirs. I first encountered the writing of Rick Bragg uh, because Cindy has a subscription to Southern Living Magazine. And on the back page of Southern Living, I guess they still do. Rick Bragg used to always write that back page. It's sort of a humor column, sort of a southern life kind of column. And he's, and he's funny, and he really knows southern culture. And he talks about sweet tea and pulpwood trucks and, you know, all the stuff that I grew up with in, uh, in southern culture. So he wrote a book, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. And it's a great book. It's a story of his life. It's funny. He grew up in North Alabama, not far from here, dirt poor. I mean, dirt, dirt poor. He rose from that great poverty uh, to be a writer for the New York Times and won the Pulitzer Prize for his writing. Uh, but he has those southern roots. So I'm going to read to you just a, a section here. He told about when he first went to church. His mother didn't go to church, uh, never went to church, never took he or his two brothers to church. Uh, she watched Oral Roberts on television and laid hands on their black and white TV every once in a while, but beyond that, had no religion. But there came a point in his young life when he was nine years old when she thought, he said, maybe I needed to get a little closer to the source. Maybe the Holy Spirit was lost somewhere over Tupelo, Mississippi, coming through the airwaves, and maybe I ought to actually go to church. And so she said, um, here's, I'll pick up reading. So whatever happened, one grim Sunday morning, I found myself bathed like I'd never been bathed before. She cleaned so deep inside my ears, I thought she'd gouge all the way through and pull the wash rag out the other side of my head. Dusted me with so much talcum powder, I was chemically unable to sweat. Slicked my hair down with a bottomless, dust-covered bottle of rose hair oil. She gave me a Bible in one hand that I'd never cracked open. The other hand, a quarter my mama told me to deliver to the collection plate if it came my way. I noticed I was the only one going. Mark was still too little to waste good religion on, and Sam, at the faintest notion of church, had cut and run. I went that day with my cousins, Linda, Wanda, and Charlotte, my Aunt Edna's girls, in a 1962 Thunderbird that wouldn't go in reverse. You had to park it with its nose facing the wide open spaces or you were trapped. We pulled up to the old solid concrete block building of Hollis Crossroads Baptist Church, but not too close to the building or we wouldn't get out. And the car doors swung open to the unmistakable smell of grilling meat. I learned it was dinner on the grounds. It almost made a good Christian out of me right there on the spot. <laughs> he said, I, I didn't realize that this was something they did once a year. And here was a hundred church ladies, all schooled in the culinary genius of generations, unloading truckloads of uh, potato salad, homemade pickles, barbecue pork chops, deviled eggs, 
dusted with cayenne pepper, fried chicken, squash, casserole, biscuits, a bathtub-sized vat of banana pudding. He said, if this was heaven, this is what I wanted, he said. He goes on to tell about his experience at church. But I, I'm going to cut to the end, and, and here's what he says. At the end of this chapter on his religious experience, I stopped going after a while. I never went to church again, but I'm not sorry I went. I don't buy all of it, or even most of it, what those preachers said. I don't think you have to do anything to get into heaven except do right. If you've ever pushed a wheelchair for somebody and nobody paid you, then you might get in. If you ever peeked inside an old person's screen door and cracked open their loneliness with a simple hello, you might get in. My mama will, that I know. And that's how he ends his chapter on religion. And I read that and, you know, I was sort of sad. Here is a guy who grew up in an area near where I grew up who's brilliant who went on to write for the New York Times and made something of himself and won a Pulitzer Prize. And he's, he's a brilliant writer and so crafted in, in writing. But somehow, the God of this age has blinded his mind to the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And that happens even all across the Bible Belt of the South. That those of us who should know there is a force against us who is convincing us that God wants you to be good. He's out there somewhere. If you're good, you go to heaven. And he just wants you to be happy. And that's all there is to it. And folks, that's not the gospel. Well, then what is the gospel? Let me make sure you know. What is this good news? Here's the gospel, the good news. The good news is that the one true living God has for a limited time declared complete amnesty to rebellious sinners of which you are the worst. He can do this, make this incredible offer, and still be a just, righteous God because He has given His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth, become a human, die on the cross in your place to take the penalty you deserve and be raised from the dead. And if you will accept this amazing offer of pardon, you'll be forgiven for all that you've done, you'll be adopted into the family of God, and you will become heir to all that the King possesses including eternal life that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and Satan is working to conceal that from you and he's working to conceal it by keeping you away from preaching and from the message or if you do come he doesn't want you to think about it long he wants to snatch it like a bird snatches a seed and then if you do consider it, he wants to somehow distort it in your mind so that you don't hear that offer of amnesty, pardon, grace through Jesus and you get it somehow mixed up to be God's out there. He wants me to be good. He wants me to be happy. That's what religion is all about. Oh, don't let him blind you to the gospel. So if, if he's working, how do we thwart that strategy? Well, you simply share the good news. Believe and share the good news because the power of the gospel is in the end greater than the power of Satan. Let's go back to our passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
And let me read to you the verses that follow 2 Corinthians 4, 4, verses 5 and 6. And it says, so here's Paul's response after he said, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He says in verse 5, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So you simply share the good news. Because we don't want you to be afraid of the devil. That's not the purpose of this series. We're to fear only God. But we don't want to be unaware of his tactics. And so what we want to do is understand He doesn't like the gospel. So we want to share the gospel and let light shine in darkness. You know how Paul knew that that miraculous power was effective? Because it had happened in his life. And finally, I want to read to you Acts chapter 16, or excuse me, Acts chapter 26, verses 17 and 18. And Jesus, when he appeared to to Paul, said, I'll rescue you. And I'm sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It had happened in Paul's life. The God of this age had gotten him all confused. He was persecuting the way the Christians But the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ came to him and turned him from the power of Satan to the power of God, from darkness to light. And now he said, God sent me just to share that good news with the Gentiles that he might turn them from the power of Satan to the power of God, from darkness to light. That's what can happen in your life as well. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. There's an enemy who's trying to conceal from you the good news. He doesn't want you to receive that amazing offer of amnesty, pardon, forgiveness. But if you'll open your heart just a little bit, if you'll give consideration, could this be true? The word can come into your heart, the light can shine in the darkness. And you can be miraculously forgiven and saved. Is God speaking to you through his word? Do you hear the truth of the gospel today? We stand and sing in a moment. I'm going to invite you to come and walk forward and say, Jesus is Lord. I I believe that he's the son of God who died and rose again. And I I accept his offer of pardon, forgiveness, and I'll follow him. Let's stand together. As God speaks to your heart, would you come? Maybe you need to come and be a part of this church fellowship and join as we begin a new church here. Link arms with these people and say, I want to be on this team. I want to be a part of this family as we go forward to share that good news. We'd invite you to come. Meet one of the pastors here at the front. This is our way of of responding as God speaks to your heart. Would you come?